Welcome to MC Squared, a podcast that brings minds together to cultivate incredible ideas. This podcast's primary focus is dedicated to showing off highlights and discussing possible applications of some of the most innovative work that academics have spent tireless hours pioneering. Join us as we discuss the newest advances in technology so you can start unpackaging the marvels of the scientific world. I am your host, Jonathan Kramer, and today I'm joined by my studio producer, Constantine Milam. In today's episode, we explore how our human mind utilizes fear to construct the perceptual grounds of the human experience. We discuss the intricacies behind life's emotional reaction to elements of fear. And so I ask you this, what knowledge can we gain from studying fear? Specifically, what is the point of fear? And how do we use it as a tool to guide us in our everyday experiences? I've invited Professor Joseph Dunsmore, a cognitive neuroscientist, to help us expand upon these areas of inquiry. Specifically, Professor Dunsmore has worked extensively on elucidating the neurobehavioral mechanism of fear. And so today, I really want to touch on the topic of these types of neurobehavioral techniques, how we can observe them, how we accumulate such data on the brain. And before we get into that, I wanted to ask how you got interested into all this area of research and the technicality behind it yeah that's a yeah i don't know i guess i haven't really thought about it recently but i i got really into the idea of brain imaging at first so functional mri um i just found it fascinating and cool for obvious reasons you get to kind of see how the brain's working and so after college i went to work at the national institute of health as a research assistant and so i found a brain imaging lab and it's mostly physicists because MRI is mostly done by you know biophysicists and that that kind of side. But there happened to be a cognitive neuroscientist working on fear, fear conditioning, in the lab, and I worked with him. And uh, he it was fascinating stuff. So he was basically doing Pavlovian fear conditioning inside of MRI to see kind of how the brain learns to form negative associations, and that's the kind of stuff I can talk about at length today. But it was a fascinating field, and around the time I had read a book by Joe Ledoux, who's a professor at NYU, who kind of popularized the idea of the amygdala and fear using rats and fear conditioning um, throughout the 80s and 90s. And uh, he wrote a book called Synaptic Self, which I had also just read after college just for fun. You know, it was like a popular neuroscience book you could pick up. up. Yeah. It was at Barnes & Noble's, which, yeah, you know. Um, so read that book kind of simultaneously was doing neuroimaging in humans, doing fear conditioning, and they kind of converged on what I wanted to do. You know, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in grad school, Um, but found a lab that was doing similar work that I was doing as a research assistant. Went down to Duke to work with uh, Professor Kevin Labar and just instantly decided this is what I want to do for my research. And this, I really got into it, really dug the literature. It touches on a lot of cool areas going back to like Pavlov. So you have like 100 years of research to, to, to pull from when you're trying to talk about fear conditioning, learning, memory, the brain. So after that, went off to New York to do a postdoc for a few years, also kind of staying in the same domain of what I was doing now, and then 
can kind of carrying it forward to this day. So mm-hmm. I, the general area of, of fear and fear learning, it's cool for a lot of reasons to me that talk, it, it really touches on some of the basic aspects of how the brain encodes information. Um, emotion is a really powerful way to get an animal to learn something. And so if you want to get an animal to form a memory, how does the animal learn something? Use an electric shock. It's really powerful learning. Happens in one trial sometimes. So unlike a lot of learning with like mazes and stuff like that, where you have to train the animal or to press a lever for certain things, shock is, you know, you pair a tone with the, with the, it's very quick, very powerful, very robust, lasts for the lifetime of the animal. If you're interested in just how does the brain learn stuff, then fear conditioning is kind of your go-to paradigm for that. If you're then interested in the next step of, well, how does that relate to emotions? Well, you're using fear already in an animal. So then you could say, well, actually, I kind of understand how the animal is uh, learning defensive responses. How does this relate to humans and pathologies of fear? So PTSD, it's a great model that you could use fear conditioning to explain. And then you can go the next step and say, all right, well, we're understanding how people are learning fear. What can we do so that they can overcome their fears or, or uh, you know, regulate their emotions? And for that, you also have a, something for, with a hundred-year history, and that's what Pavlov called extinction, where with the dog and the, the, the bell signals the food, they salivate. Then you just play the bell over and over again without the food, and then the mm-hmm. salivation goes down. Pretty basic, straightforward stuff. It's also the basis for exposure therapy. If you're afraid of snakes, then just have somebody play around with snakes for a long time. Their their fear subsides. And that's that's like an innate fear. Snakes go down very far in human history as a general stimuli for fear, right? Yeah. So there's this idea that certain things are way easier to form associations with with fear. So things like snakes, they're obvious dangers, and it would be beneficial for us through certain through you know our history of being defensive around snakes and also learning the association that snakes are dangerous really quickly and not having to have several occasions of being around snakes to know that they're dangerous. So there's this idea that there are certain things that kind of go back through our evolutionary history that have been threats to us. These are kind of the, the most obvious phobias too. People have fears of, you know, uh, fear of heights because you don't want to fall down, hurt yourself. Rackets um, for me. Those things. Yeah. Spiders, snakes, <laughs> yeah. loud noises, and then also other people to some extent. And so uh, there's this idea that we have this kind of in-group bias um, and we have a very prepotent ability to form negative associations with people from the out-group. And this kind of touches on more of a social area of social psychology and social neuroscience. But within fear conditioning, you can take pictures of people who are from a different race as you, and they act just as snakes or spiders do in fear conditioning experiments. And so people will fear condition them really quickly, and they have a really tough time extinguishing to a picture of someone from a racial outgroup. So there's this idea that it kind of touches back into the same kind of primitive fears as things like uh, snakes and heights and loud noises and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, that these other kind of social stimuli also represent. So I kind of understand the the Pavlov representation where you send some kind of stimuli to a dog and that signals, hey, it's time to eat or it's time to do some kind of activity. But when you say like fear conditioning, what are you really referring to as in in terms of the Pavlov distribution? It's kind of psych 101, but right, not everyone might remember the idea of, of Pavlov and Pavlovian mm-hmm. association. So the, the basic finding from Pavlov was that you can take neutral stimuli in the environment, 
pair them with something that's biologically significant and the animal will then show a learned response in the presence of that neutral thing. So the idea was that you have a, a bell or a tone. The animal would normally disregard that as just a meaningless sound. They won't salivate naturally, but you then present it paired with food. It's time to eat. The animal learns that the bell predicts the food. Then they'll show an anticipatory response before the food is presented of salivating. And they, Pavlov took this, the amount of salivation, as a way to quantify uh, how strongly they've learned that association. It's a very basic form of learning. Most species have something that uh, it's, it's kind of approximates Pavlovian conditioning. So you can do it in you know, sea slugs. You can do it in fruit flies. Rats and mice tend to be a great laboratory animal for conditioning. And people, of course. Little flies. Yeah, fruit flies are great for conditioning. You can do awesome genetic studies in flies because they reproduce like crazy. And yeah, the, the genome's worked out. And so you could do really cool stuff in, in, in fruit flies. Surprisingly, you'd think, oh, it's a you know, fairly complex learning, you know, defensive behavior. How do they learn that? But they learn it really easily. Rats, flies. Okay. And so when you're referring to fear conditioning, kind of jumping back into that. Yeah. What kind of stimuli are you presenting to condition this sense of fear? Yeah, so fear conditioning is just replacing out the food with an electric shock. In this case, our subjects, who are people, will attach electric shocks to their wrists or to their fingers, something mild, not something that they would say is painful. We don't really care um, to make it painful. It's more that they just don't like it. And then we'll present something, depending on the experiment, picture or a sound, before the shock. And then they'll, they'll learn that because they kind of appear together. And then we can keep presenting it over and over again. And while we're doing this experiment, we'll measure things like sweating or how big your pupils get, kind of the fight or flight responses. We have these, this equipment that can monitor all these what we call physiological variables. Um, or we can do it during MRI and we can see how the brain is learning these associations. And so, you know, we can change things around, you know, given what our questions are for a specific experiment. But the basic Pavlovian fear conditioning preparation is just that. It's just people learning that stimuli can predict something that they don't like. Interesting. What can you learn from looking at the results as of yet? I mean, I understand you're trying to elucidate the neurobehavioral mechanism in the sense of what does it mean to be afraid of something or what does it mean to want to run or to initiate these fight or fight responses? Yeah. And, and my question, I guess, is why do you think that's important? Why do you think it's important to elucidate these things with different stimuli? So the significance of these kind of paradigms, they actually form the basis for a lot of mental health research. So when you're trying to, to, to kind of quantify a, a disease – like a mental health disease, like PTSD or anxiety disorders or, or depression or what have you, um, it helps to have something that is objective, that is quantifiable, that you can measure overtly, so that it's less of a nebulous concept and uh, doesn't rely entirely on subjective reports. And so fear conditioning is a great model for how quickly and strongly people form threat associations. And so the idea is that if your brain is wired in such a way that you're more prone to develop PTSD or that, you know, given 
a traumatic experience, your ability to regulate your emotions is now compromised. So that can have a lot of consequences in your daily life for obvious reasons. But it also means that your brain is wired in such a way now that we can do a basic laboratory fear, you know, just a picture in a shock, and your brain will process it differently than would somebody who doesn't have PTSD or is psychologically healthy reportedly or resilient or something like that. And so we can kind of use this as a, a proxy for how the brain is, is, is working, um, both in terms of how quickly people learn threat associations, uh, how strong the association is, how much they generalize it. And so that was the topic of my PhD research was all on how people generalize their fears. Given some kind of experience, how do you then generalize it to other situations? And then also, are you able to extinguish or overcome your fear? And so there's, in rats, a lot of really precise, awesome, cutting-edge research on identifying specific neurons that are involved in uh, coding memories of fear versus coding the memories of safety or extinction. And we can't quite do that to the level that people who study rats can do with MRI. But we can, you know, we can kind of approximate it. And so that's what we do. We kind of hone in on the, the neural regions that are implicated in learning and then overcoming uh, fear. And so for the overcoming fear aspect, we tend to focus on the prefrontal cortex and a region called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. It's kind of like right in between the lobes in the in the midline, kind of right behind the eyes. Yeah, I'm visualizing something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. So that area seems to be really important for learning safety and also for storing a memory of safety that you then retrieve at a later time when you're kind of confronted by something that maybe is a little ambiguous in terms of threat value. Should I be afraid? Should I not be afraid? You know, I've had a negative experience with something, but then I've also had experiences where nothing bad happened. Um, so now I'm in this situation, I have to resolve, should I be afraid or not? The uh, ventromedial prefrontal cortex seems to be really important for helping resolve that ambiguity. So what it can do is it has projections into the amygdala that can help downregulate amygdala activity. And so when you might be prone to showing some, some fear or, or being afraid, this is one, uh, one brain region that seems to be really critical for kind of, a, you know, quelling or, or saying, you know, be quiet to the amygdala so it doesn't express fear. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you like this podcast and want to support it, feel free to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes. Every review helps boost our chances of other people finding this podcast. If you want to receive weekly updates... You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter at MC squared underscore podcast. And now it's time to get back to the show with Professor Joseph Dunsmore. Okay, so I want to take a step back here and kind of address a more so societal impact of the results you have presented. So let me frame it like this. If you understand that there's there's specific stimuli that elicit a response in the fear department of the brain. Could you apply this to our daily lives and say like, oh, if you have a society with these specific stimuli, these people will develop PTSD, right? This might be far-fetched, but if you have maybe like these type of organisms over here, generally speaking, these animals will react this way to these ones, right? And then in a sense, you're censoring that because you're aware that it's going to cause problems. And so you separate those two elements and then going into it, do you think there's a development component? Do you think it's necessary to actually have people have fear and stimuli into their lives? Because at some point in time, I feel like 
we're just going to be avoiding all these things like, okay, that's scary. I don't want to touch that anymore. Right. We, we've already elucidated. I know this has a tendency psychologically to cause fear in most people. Do you think that there's going to be a time when we don't really subject ourselves to much fear elements? Yeah. I mean, there's there was a lot there in the question. I guess I'll take one aspect of it of whether or not you should, if you know what is dangerous, and this is, you don't even need neuroscience for this. You just know what is dangerous or what you're afraid of, whether or not it actually is dangerous. It's a perceived threat. Um, should you avoid those kinds of things? So in some cases, things are genuinely threatening and you avoid them because it's dangerous and you don't want to engage in those kind of dangerous activities. That's fine. You know, you can maybe learn through trial and error growing up. Uh, maybe skateboarding isn't right for you because you fall down all the time. You're not coordinated enough to do it. Maybe you should stop doing it. Um, but there are things where you would want to engage in some activity, but you're afraid to do it. And so what can you do to get over it? And so social anxiety is a really strong example or public speaking anxiety. You know, some jobs, you know, for my job, I have to give a lot of public lectures and I don't always love it. And sometimes I get nervous and I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. So what do I do to get over it? And so there's a, a lot of ideas of how you can get over fears in order to engage in everyday behaviors. And some of them would involve therapy, obviously. You know, you could go in and thankfully in terms of, you know, anxiety disorders are the most common mental health disease. You know, they affect like 40 plus million adults in America, if not more. But they're also the most treatable. They respond really well to treatment. So a lot of fears, a lot of phobias, social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder respond really well to, to, to pharmacological treatments. They also respond really well to therapy. There's this idea that you should... To, to get over fears, you do have to confront them. And so, you know, you could say one idea is just for exposure therapy. You, you have to – you can work yourself up to it and that's called systematic desensitization in therapy. So if you're afraid of snakes, first you have to talk about – you know, you imagine a snake. You talk about your fears of what it would be like if you had to touch a snake. You might be in a room with a snake you walk up to a cage with a snake inside to eventually handling the snake. You know, you're working yourself up to it. But um, that seems to be a, a, a decent way of getting at it. There's this idea of prolonged exposure therapy, which is now considered the, the, the major treatment for PTSD, especially for military vets. Um, and that is where you just relive or you, you talk about the trauma over and over again. Um, there's different ways of doing it, but one is just writing down what happened to you. You read it out loud over and over again. At first, it's really hard to do. Uh, a lot of people don't tolerate it very well, and they might drop out, and they're saying, this isn't for me. But it seems to be if you can do it enough and engage in it enough and you habituate to it enough, then at some point it, it kind of loses the, – the trauma loses some of its power. But in all these cases, the idea is that you need to, to, to engage in it. You know, If you want to get over your fear of going to parties – then you're just going to have to go to a party. I mean, you know, you can work yourself up to it, but you, avoiding it is going to perpetuate it because in your mind, the fear is always going to be there because, oh, something bad could have happened. It's a good thing I didn't go because uh, I avoided this terrible thing, you know, or like I'm afraid of flying. Oh, well, the flight that I was going to take didn't crash, but it doesn't mean like the next one won't crash. Yeah, I think it's interesting because like most sources of fear nowadays are not life-threatening sources. I mean, we live in a good construct here in America at least. And so most fear is very, in a sense, small, 
right? There's not much actual life-threatening danger. Like, I'm going to die. Yeah, but our right? brains haven't changed that much. So Really? <laughs> well, I mean, given that our brains evolved in an environment where we were confronting life or death situations on a daily basis. So now we've substituted or something. I, th- I mean, I think, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> really? Wow. I mean, you know, we, we have a brain that's wired to rapidly detect threats where they may or may not occur. And there's a better safe than sorry approach where we just, even once we learn that something that we thought was dangerous is now safe, we don't erase the old memory from our brain. There's this kind of conservative anxiety hypothesis where it's just better for survival to, rem- to remember the dangerous stuff, the negative stuff, because those are the things that are important for survival. And even though they can plague us and they're the memories we don't like, they're the memories that stick and this is kind of where the idea of emotion kind of coloring our memories and deciding which memories linger and which memories can be you know, fluffed off and we can forget. And that's one of the ideas is that, that fear is an especially powerful emotion. And so things that are encoded around the time of fear are the things that stick. And this is also the problem why we have a lot of uh, people who have trauma have intrusive memories for a lot of the this, the seemingly neutral details that were encoded at the time of the trauma. And so the time of day, the place where it occurred, things that aren't necessarily directly tied into something bad happening, they, they kind of get incorporated as part of the memory. People who were around who might not have you know, been involved in anything, they, they all kind of get put in. So these, they can become triggers. Would you say that the stronger the emotional um, feeling the better your memory is of that specific event. No, not necessarily. Because there's, there's, there's a, the extreme version of that where you actually have a lot of disordered thoughts. For trauma especially. Trauma is kind of the, you know, the, the magnified emotional – the example of something that's an extremely intense emotional experience. And the memory for the actual trauma in a lot of cases is, uh, is disordered and is not very precise. And what some people found is when they look at – What's the content of the intrusive memories that people have from a trauma? You know, you ask people like, what, what, is, what are the triggers? What are the things that like you just can't get, you can't shake? And they tend to be pretty interesting things because they're not necessarily emotional themselves. The content, the content tends to be things that were associated temporarily in time with the trauma that occurred beforehand. A really good example is in people who have trauma after getting into a head-on collision in a car accident. Uh, one of the intrusive memories is oncoming headlights. And so it's not the memory necessarily of the moment of impact. It might not necessarily be the intrusive memory of, of the pain that was experienced in the, in the accident. One of the things that actually is really hard to overcome and that really triggers a fear really quickly is the sight of oncoming headlights. So it's the moment before. It's the things that kind of predicted what's about to happen. So those, those things tend to get you know, set in amber. Our brain is literally somehow knowing... We don't want to actually utilize the actual event of the trauma. We want to utilize what events led up to that trauma. Right. And you can think of the adaptive nature of that where it's saying the brain is basically saying, well, next time we see the, the warning signals, let's act, let's react. And so we can avoid this thing happening next time. So if oncoming headlights is associated with getting into a car accident, and the brain's going to be really conservative now. And every time you see oncoming headlights, your brain's going to say, hey, watch out. Watch out. And, you know, even though it's probably not what you want because 
for a lot of activities, you have to engage them all the time. And if you're, if these are the kind of triggers that trigger a lot of hyperarousal and anxiety, then that's maladaptive. But you could see it from a point of view of the brain just being defensive. That is so cool. I'm just imagining this scenario, I guess, in which we evolve to take these different stimuli and utilize them in ways to shape our memory, this emotional stimuli to shape our entire perspective of what we will do in our lives. I think that's, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's the point of having memory, really? What's the, what's the adaptive function of having memory at all? It's just to kind of predict what's going to happen next. So memory, in a sense, to me, is it's not for recalling or remembering. It's for predicting. There's a lot of memory researchers who would agree with that, that it might be fun to sit and recollect about the past, and it might seem useful in a lot of other ways, but it is really helpful for making predictions. Interesting. So you did some work in this pretty recently in emotional-based memory collection, right? Now, I'm curious how you can even really test that kind of thing. Do you, I guess, subject some kind of organism or some kind of person into some kind of route in which they see trauma, traumatic events and sequences, and then you say, okay, let's see how your memory is of this specific thing? Or what, what you, kind of you can do that. So that's not the way we do it. Some people will um, – so you don't ever induce trauma that's, in a yeah, subject. I mean, bad. that goes against our uh, you know, ethics. Our ethics. So we, we approximate danger by – usually we use electric shocks. Some people will use video clips or pictures of, of things that people don't like. And so you know, some studies, if they're testing emotional memory, will show a movie, and maybe parts of the movie are really emotional, negative, positive, a scary movie, whatever. We use electric shocks, and if we're trying to test memory memory, so what people normally think of and when they think of memory are things like episodic memory, what you can kind of verbally say, oh, I remember seeing this, or I remember hearing that, things that are more explicit. So to get at that kind of more human-type memory with fear conditioning, we'll use different pictures of a category. And so instead of normally we'll do things, Pavlovian conditioning tends to be things like a tone paired with a shock. Um, and so instead of doing that, we'll do an entire category of objects as paired with the shock. So subjects form a rule and they say, all right, while well, I'm sitting down and in, in this experiment, if any picture of an animal shows up, there's a chance I'm going to get shocked to it. Could be a different. Every trial will be a different picture of an animal, but they have that rule going through it. And vice versa, if it's a picture of another category, say a picture of a tool, they know that they're not going to get a shock. And we can, you know, change that across our subjects. Whatever, some subjects will get shocked to tools or whatever. So when they're getting shocked to animals, we can show them as many pictures as we want. We tend, you know, 40, 50, 60 pictures of animals. Every animal picture is a different animal. But while they're seeing it, and we call them coding it. They know that they can get the shock, so they're going to show a conditioned response when they see the picture. You know, we can measure sweating, so we know within the moment they get it, they're learning the rule. And so when we can do a surprise memory test later, we usually bring them back a, a day or so later, and then we say, all right, we're going to test your memory. Here's a bunch of pictures of animals and tools, some of them you saw, some you didn't see. Uh, just tell us if you remember this or not. And... Time and again, people say, you know, in the study, they'll remember more animals than tools if they're shocked to animals, or they'll remember more tools if they're shocked to tools than animals. So that was neat. We able to kind of cross Pavlovian conditioning with episodic memory. Those are kind of two different hmm. camps of cognitive and behavioral psychology, behavioral neuroscience. So we, we were happy with that. But what we found in um, 
kind of accidental finding that got some attention was if we showed people pictures of animals and tools before we did the experiment, so they don't have any electric shocks on them, they don't know what's going to happen next, they're just seeing a bunch of pictures of animals and tools, and then about 20 minutes into the experiment, now you're getting shocked to, say, animals. And then we test the memory the next day. What we found was people have enhanced memory for the pictures that they saw before fear conditioning if they're conceptually related to what they later get shocked to. So what this means is that if you're shocked to a a different set of pictures of animals, they have emotional significance. Each individual item could have emotional significance because something bad happened. You know, I saw a picture of a penguin, you got shocked. But it also means that if you saw, you know, a, a dog and an armadillo before you got shocked, you're likely to remember those also. But only if we tested your memory after a day um, if we tested your memory immediately, you didn't show that enhancement. So that means something is happening in the brain offline over some kind of period of time where it's what we think is happening. We don't know this specifically is that uh, your select your brain is kind of selectively retaining information that's related to a future threat. Hmm. And so seeing a bunch of pictures of you know, animals and tools, who cares? No big deal. Maybe you'll remember those. Maybe you won't. No real reason to remember them one category over the other, except now we're giving the brain a reason to remember one category over the other because in the future, you're getting these shocks to one category. And so over a period of time, your brain is basically saying, I should probably remember all the things that are related to that, even the things that happened back in the past. So that was a... That's surpri- cool. It was it was cool. It was surprising. It wasn't um, what we had thought initially when we had designed the study. We were piloting something else and kept finding this weird fluky result where people remembered all these pictures that were conceptually related to what they were about to get shocked to, and that didn't make any sense. But we found um, at the time there was some really cool neuroscience work happening in South America in rats on something called behavioral tagging. And I'll just briefly summarize what this is. It's it's this idea that you can learn something that relies on a particular brain region, say the hippocampus. Hippocampus is a lot of different things from memory. You can learn something or train a rat to learn something at a level that's very weak. So uh, they have to, say, learn to avoid part of a cage that's electrified. So normally they, they, they don't want to go to the electrified part of the cage, so they'll hang out over in the other part. That learning involves the hippocampus. You can train a rat on that really weak level, just one trial. Test them the next day, they'll forget it. They'll, they'll act like they never learned it in the first place. If you train them to do that weak level, wait a little bit of time, and now you take the rat and you let them run around an open novel field, then that experience will retroactively improve the memory from the first experience. And the idea is that they're having two experiences that both rely on the hippocampus. The first one was pretty weak. The second experience for a rat running around an open field is like a really big deal. They love doing it. Play. They're they're playing. They yeah. are strapped in a cage all the time. It's a, it's a novel experience. It releases a bunch of dopamine um, into the hippocampus. There's explorations of the hippocampus is, is you know, really jazzed to do that. So, that strong experience, if it happens within a critical time window of the weak experience, will rescue the memories from the weak experience. So 
the idea is that the first experience, you know, you're setting down these weak memories all the time. As you're going throughout your day, every experience is just kind of laying down a weak tag, you'd call it. Whether or not that experience kind of persists or stays in memory might depend on something important happening in the future. And if it involves the same brain region, which would in theory involve the same neurons, same synapses, kind of all coalescing together, then you can take those weak experiences and trap them and capture them, they call it, and they become consolidated or remembered as if they were learned really strong in the first place. So this is the idea of behavioral tagging. So we wrapped up our our experiment and our findings, which we had, we had our findings, we were trying to interpret them, and then simultaneously we were like, oh, there's this amazing literature in rats on something called behavioral tagging from these groups in South America. I wonder if this is a good explanation for what we have. So we wrote it up in those theoretical terms and um, it, you know, it seemed to, seemed to fit. The idea being like just seeing a bunch of pictures of animals, for example, will set down some weak learning tags in the brain for those pictures. Nothing else happens throughout the day. The fine, you may or may not remember the pictures later, but having that really strong experience of seeing more pictures of animals, getting the shock, very, you know, strong learning experience. It's reaching back in time and capturing those weak memories, and it's going to store those selectively. Wow. Hmm. Maybe that's why I watch Planet Earth before I memorize anything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Just got to memorize all the animals. All right, well, I think we have a lot of really cool information today. Thank you so much for joining me today. Appreciate really it. forward to it. What you're doing with your next upcoming emotional research, all that good stuff. If you like this podcast and are eager to learn more, check out our website at mcsquaredpodcast.com. There you'll find all the learning visuals that we talked about in this episode and links to our guest's website. If you want to stay updated with us, subscribe on our contact page for the latest news. If you have any burning questions or ideas for the show, shoot us an email and we will be happy to respond. Thank you for listening and be sure to share this episode with your friends on any social media website that tickles your fancy. Let's work together to get everyone scienced up in the world of discovery. P.S. All music in this podcast has been brought to you by Snockercott. You can find them on SoundCloud at Snockercott. That's S-N-O-C-K-E-R space C-O-T.